Today on Blue 58, who will step up as the Packers' top receiver? We've talked about explosive plays, but we haven't touched on who's going to be the main man in the Packers' passing attack. So let's spend some time today trying to figure that out. Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink, very happy to be with you here for another episode. Long snapper news. The Packers have signed Jack Coco, one of the two snappers, at rookie minicamp earlier this month. The, the Coco has played offensive line and tight end in his career to date at Georgia Tech. Uh, he redshirted in 2017, spent 2018 and 19 on the offensive line. In 2020, switched over to tight end. Still did some snapping there too. And in 2021, he played just tight end for Georgia Tech. According to Tech, he did not have an errant snap in 2018, 19, or 2020. Take that for whatever it's worth. The hometown grading is a little bit generous in that respect. But it sounds like he's a hard worker and willing to put his nose to the grindstone to get better and to get on the field. Started on a, as a walk-on player. Had to put in some serious work to make the transition from the offensive line to the tight end world. From Bill Huber writing for Sports Illustrated, uh, Louis Garala, uh, Georgia Tech's head strength and conditioning quote, said of... Um, of Coco, that he is a very hard worker. Quote, he's just so determined. He's a relentless worker. He was our lifter of the year last year for the big skill category of our team. He lost 60 to 70 pounds to move the tight end and transform not just his body, but his work ethic, which was insane. He would do so much extra work, so much beyond what was required of him, and he loved it. He came in here with the best attitude every day, impacted so many people around him. That's why he got the scholarship, because he was making a big impact on the team. He just outworked everyone, period. End quote. Look, I can't pretend to have the inside scoop on what sort of day-to-day routine a long snapper should have, what it looks like in the NFL, what even makes a good one versus a bad one, but work ethic is a great thing to have. And if you're looking for a guy who can improve year-to-year, week-to-week, month-to-month, things like that, well, that it seems like at least a point in his favor. That's not saying Stephen Wordle doesn't have that. I'm sure if you're a professional athlete, you have to have some level of a great work ethic. But if Coco is going to make some some noise on this team, having great work ethic is a play, good place to start. To clear a spot for Mr. Coco, the Packers released Jameer Johnson, an offensive lineman with an injury settlement. Uh, he was a undrafted free agent this year, and I'm fine with the move. Honestly, the Packers have so many offensive line prospects it was going to be tough for him to make the roster anyway. He was also very light for an offensive lineman. We talked about that during our undrafted free agent roundup, just 290 pounds at six foot five, which for a tackle in particular is is pretty, pretty light. So a long shot prospect to be sure. Now the Packers have competition at long snapper. So with that breaking news out of the way, who's going to be the Packers' top wide receiver this year? I came to this topic as a result of a Football Outsiders article, uh, an article they titled, released uh, today or within the last couple of days, uh, projecting the Packers' top wide receiver. They went through it, they listed a bunch of prospects for that job, and then never really gave an answer. It was kind of just like, well, somebody's going to have to do it, so we'll see who it is. And of course, yes, we will see. Because someone is going to have to be the Packers' top wide receiver, and I think who it's going to be is an interesting question and potentially more qualif- or more complicated than you might think. A couple aspects you have to look at. What does it even mean to be the Packers' top wide receiver? Bunch of things go into that, so who is it going to be? 
So let's expand on that question. What does it mean to be the Packers' top wide receiver? And this, I think, right off the bat is where it gets complicated. Previously, it was obviously Devontae Adams. He was the answer to that question since basically the midpoint, I think, of the 2016 season. Jordy Nelson is back from his surgically repaired ACL or with a surgically repaired ACL. And by the midpoint of the season, most of the wide receiver one looks are going to Devontae Adams, though Nelson still had a very fine 2016 season, especially considering the circumstances. But since then, Devontae Adams has been the unquestioned number one guy in Green Bay. The most important wide receiver, the most targets, the most yards. And clearly the Packers don't have that one guy anymore. But someone is probably going to be at least two of those three things, right? Someone is going to end up being their most important wide receiver, the wide receiver they can afford to do without the least. And someone is going to get the most targets. And someone is going to end up having the most yards. Some combination of those things makes you the Packers' top wide receiver. So who is that guy in Green Bay? Someone's got to be it, right? Right? Surely it's going to end up falling to one guy to just be kind of the, the lead dog, if, if not by default. So let's go point by point on those three questions. First, I think a couple guys we can rule out. As much as I, I like his chances this year, I don't think Romeo Dobbs is going to be the Packers' top wide receiver. I also don't think it's going to be Amari Rodgers. I also don't think it's going to be Samori Torre or any of the other um, undrafted free agent types that the Packers have kicking around. Sorry if you really thought this was going to be the year of Torre. Uh, he's just going to be the greatest seventh-round pick in the history of seventh-round picks. Just go straight to like 1,400-yard seasons. I don't think it's going to happen. Now that those two people have turned off the podcast, we can answer the rest of our questions, though. So who is the Packers' most important wide receiver? Who is the guy who absolutely has to be good? Who is the guy where if he has a bad season or is injured, where the Packers are really going to be in trouble? I really only think there's one prospect here. It's Alan Lazard. He is the guy the Packers will be most hurt by if he has a bad season or is is injured. He's the Packers' best combination of physical tools, experience, and established production. Now, he hasn't been, like, hugely productive, obviously, but of all the guys on the Packers' roster, he is the guy with the most recent good production in Green Bay. We also shouldn't sleep on his physical tools. We've talked about his versatility in the past. Alan Lazard is an elite athlete, a great tester, great size. Sure, the the straight, pure speed is not super ideal, but he gets by. He more than gets by. He's fast enough that Matt LaFleur feels comfortable running ends around end arounds with him from time to time. All right? So he, he's a really good prospect. And you would think that would default to just taking the lead in these other two categories too, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. Because if you start talking about who's going to get the most targets in the Packers' offense, your gut feel is probably that it's going to be Alan Lazard. However, there's another candidate on the Packers' roster here that I don't think we should forget about, Randall Cobb. Cobb versus Lazard last year was closer than you'd probably guess in terms of overall targets. Through four weeks, Randall Cobb actually led 11 targets to Lazard's eight. Through eight weeks, Lazard in, or Cobb increased his lead over Lazard, 23 targets to Lazard's 16. Now, Alan Lazard missed week eight with the COVID situation that we'll talk about here later. 
Uh, but Randall Cobb also had a game with zero targets in that stretch. So it wasn't like they had just a huge playing time disparity. Through 12 weeks, Randall Cobb still had a seven-target lead over Lazard. 39 to Lazard's 32. Lazard did miss one game in there as well, so it's 12 games to Lazard's 10, but really it's more like 11 to 10 because of the, the comp we talked about earlier. And then Randall Cobb gets injured at that point. Statistically, it looks like over the rest of the season, most of Cobb's targets ended up going to Lazard. But Cobb seemed to get the targets first. And I think there's still a good chance in 2022 that Randall Cobb siphons off some of Lazard's targets. Does that necessarily mean he'll be the top wide receiver? No. Does it mean that he's going to necessarily lead the Packers in targets? No. But I think it does make him a top wide receiver. He may not be the undisputed top dog, but he's right there with Alan Lazard. And I think he probably will be if he stays healthy in terms of production too, just because of the amount of targets he's going to get being real close with Aaron Rodgers. Finally, who's going to end up with the most yards? I think there's an important conversation to be had here about roles. And, you know, take all this with a grain of salt because we really don't know how these roles are going to shake out in a post-Devante Adams world. But in the Packers offense under Matt LaFleur, it seems like the Packers have had two pretty distinct roles for their wide receivers. They've got the yard gainers and they've got the field stretchers. The yard gainers are the guys that are moving the sticks. It is the guys who are getting the 8 to 15 yard catches. Settling down underneath, you know, scheming a guy open so he can get a catch near the line of scrimmage and run. You, you, you understand what I'm talking about. Even more simply is the field stretchers. The field stretchers, well, you know, stretch the field. Devontae Adams, of course, is was kind of in a class by himself on the Packers. He could do all of these things. Even though he didn't have elite deep speed, he was plenty good as a field stretcher just because he could beat you off the line so completely that he would end up being open for what amounts to a deep shot. But in terms of the other categories, so the non-Devontae Adams receivers, among your yard gainers, I think you had Alan Lazard, Randall Cobb, and Amari Rodgers such as he was. Your field stretchers, Marquez Valdez-Scantling, is pretty much it. Robert Tunyon probably falls into this category when he's healthy, but he's not a wide receiver, so he's kind of out of our discussion anyway. This year, the Packers haven't really added many, you know, yard gainer types. They've still got Alan Lazard. They've still got Randall Cobb. They still have Amari Rodgers. But they do have a trio of new guys who should primarily be deep threats, field stretchers. Sammy Watkins, Christian Watson, Romeo Dubs. Now, it's not going to be Dubs, but I do think there is a real chance that Watkins or Watson has the most yards on the Packers this season. And for a pretty decent comp of how that could shake out, look at Marquez Valdez-Scantling in, in 2020 when compared to Alan Lazard. I'm going with 2020 because MVS was beat up in both 2019 and 2021, and to be fair, so was Lazard in 2020, but he still had a statistical outlier in terms of his per-catch-per-target productivity that year, so I think it's a fair comp. Yards per target, MVS playing the field stretcher role averaged 11 yards per target. Even though he wasn't catching all those targets, when he did get the ball thrown his way, it was worth about 11 yards per per pass for the Packers. Alan Lazard averaged just 9.8 yards per target. He was doing exceptional prior to his core muscle injury, his sports hernia. But even post-injury, he was pretty solid. And still, overall, this season was a, you know, a, an, an outlier in terms of his per-target productivity. Why do I bring that up? I think it's an example of how 
certain roles could result in guys being more productive than you might otherwise think they would be. So looking at that MVS type role for the Packers, who's going to fill that in 2022? Well, it's going to be Christian Watson or Sammy Watkins and probably Christian Watson. Take note, I am not saying that Christian Watson is like Marquez Valdez-Scantling. That is a point of some contention among Packers media. Christian Watson is not a one-to-one comparison with MVS. He has a more complete skill set coming out of college, even at a lower level of college football than MVS did. Though he is just as fast, I think he's a little bit, he looks a little bit bigger. He's better with the ball in his hands than MVS was. That's, I'm not saying they are the same player. I'm saying that a guy like Christian Watson to start in his NFL career is probably going to be asked to do the same kind of things that MVS did for the Packers, because that's a very easy way to get a very young, physically talented player involved in your offense. Just figure out situations where you can get him isolated, either one-on-one with a corner or with a corner and some safety help over top, and just run, just go. And Watson can do that for sure. In theory, Sammy Watkins probably can as well. He'll probably fill some variety of that MVS sort of role. While you've got your Alan Lazard or your Randall Cobb working underneath, you're going to have Sammy Watkins trying to get deep over top. Now, it may not be the flat-out drag racing type stuff that MVS was doing, just straight down the field, but it's going to be in that vein, deep posts, deep post-corner type routes. They're going to try to get Sammy Watkins down the field. One of those two guys, Watson or Watson Watkins, is going to be on the field a lot. The Packers just don't have the wide receiver bodies to keep either one off of the field much. The top three of the on the wide receiver depth chart this season is going to be some variation of Alan Lazard, Randall Cobb, and Watkins or Watson. I think there's a real chance that just because of the opportunities that they're going to get and how they'll be getting them, Watkins or Watson ends up putting up big yards. And I know for certain, this is beside the points, but I'm going to end up calling him Christian Watkins at some point. It's just going to happen. We're going to have a Rasheed Wallace. We're going to have a Christian Watkins and probably some other just lame brain name mix-up of some kind. So bottom line, who comes out in this entire entire exercise? Alan Lazard still probably has your best shot to be quote-unquote the guy for the Packers. But I don't think it's a slam dunk. If he's healthy, Randall Cobb is going to give him a run on targets. Watson and Watkins are going to get their deep shots. And depending on target volume, I don't think it's that crazy to think that Christian Watson could end up leading the Packers in yards in 2022. That would be a huge historical aberration for Aaron Rodgers and for the Packers, but I think it could happen. It's not outside the realm of possibility. This is not predictions episode, so we're not going to to say for sure that that is something that's going to end up happening, but I don't think it's impossible. So file that away in the back of your head. Lazard is definitely the Packers' more most important receiver. But he's not necessarily going to get the most targets, and there's a good chance that I, I don't think he gets the most yards on the Packers either. Before we resume our game-by-game breakdown of the 2021 Packers, I want to take a second to shout out a few of our Patreon supporters. Patreon, of course, the lifeblood of the podcast, the way that we uh, continue to keep the lights on here. We do not run ads. You will never hear an ad on this podcast, and that's for a couple of reasons. First, I want to make podcasts. I don't want to be an ad salesman. That's a big part of getting ads on your show. But secondly, I think ads really detract from your experience as a reader. Just imagine, we're having a great discussion about uh, Packers wide receivers, and then you have to hear me do an ad about, say, Oh, a mattress or some men's hygiene product, or as likely as not, um, 
daily fantasy sports. Terrific. Everybody loves hearing about those three things. Instead, you could just support the show directly, send everything to me instead of partly giving your attention to a ad company, and you get to support a show that you enjoy listening to. Just something to think about. Patreon.com slash the power sweep is where you do it. Choose any dollar amount per month that you like and become one of our valued supporters and get access to a bunch of great stuff as a result. Today I'm shouting out Bree Van Valera, Lucas Willems, and Nick Twine as our Patreon supporters. Grateful to each of you for your support and for anybody who continues to support uh, the Power Sweep or chooses to support the Power Sweep uh, going forward. All right, week seven through nine in our Packers game-by-game recap. This is where the Packers season really took a turn for the weird because you had a bunch of injuries in this stretch and, well, weeks eight and nine really get weird too. Week seven, though, the Packers host the Washington football team at Lambeau Field. If you look at what happened, this was a game where the Packers seemingly could have named the score but decided to only name a pretty low score, actually. 24 to 10 the final, but it that is much lower than it should have been or could have been. Really a slow-paced game, only nine possessions for the Packers, and really boom or bust throughout. They scored on four of those nine, three touchdowns and a field goal, but those other five possessions, three three-and-outs, a fumble on the second play of another drive, and a blocked field goal. Terrific stuff. Excellent across the board. Basically a listless performance for the Packers, and, well, they got the win, but... How excited are you about that win anyway? The run game didn't go anywhere in this one, but probably your most well-rounded passing effort of the season so far. Devontae Adams, Robert Tunyon, and Alan Lazard all had 60 or more receiving yards, and Tunyon got his second and final touchdown of the season. This game was decided, as well as the offense performed, in heavy air quotes there, uh, when the Packers' defense decided that the, the Washington football team was just done moving the ball in the third quarter and in the early fourth quarter. In those four drives that span the third quarter and the first drive of the fourth, here's how Washington went. A fumble, a turnover on downs, a second turnover on downs, and an interception. And look, I know it's Washington, but that is a pretty darn solid stretch for the Packers' defense. In terms of lasting impact, I'm not sure there's really anything that emerges from this game. Lasting impact really might be a stretch, but... This could be the game where the recipe for beating the 2021 Packers was revealed. If you manage to slow down the Packers' run game and make Aaron Rodgers in the passing game beat you, and you could just hope for the best from there, maybe you end up stealing a win. Now, Washington, to be clear, didn't come anywhere close to doing that, but if you're just waiting for the Packers to shoot themselves in the foot, that might be a viable way to beat them in 2021. And as it turned out, a couple teams managed to make that happen, including the San Francisco 49ers. In terms of what we forgot from this game, three things noteworthy. I think Whitney Merciless made his debut for the Packers. Jalen Smith, also on the field in Green Bay, making his only tackle as a member of the Packers. Did you forget he existed? I would totally understand if you did. Packers also sported their green throwbacks for the first time against Washington. In week eight, The Packers traveled to Arizona on short rest for a Thursday night football game. What happened was Rasul Douglas said, no thank you. Game over. 24-21 Packers win in doubt until the bitter end, and what an ending it was with Rasul Douglas coming up with an unexpected interception in the end zone, though more on that in a second. Thursday night football usually means some beat-up teams, and the Packers were without a bunch of guys due to injury and, well, just about everything else 
going wrong. No Devontae Adams, no Al Lazard, no Marquez Valdez-Scantling, no Josh Myers either. And it kind of showed on the field. Aaron Rodgers, not super sharp, but sharp enough to get it done. 22 of 37 passing for 184 yards and two touchdowns. The game, though, was decided when A.J. Green ran the wrong route and Rasul Douglas was there to take advantage, having been claimed just about a month prior off of the Arizona Cardinals practice squad. There he is, Johnny on the spot right there at the end to take the game away from the Cardinals. In terms of lasting impact, now the game itself was fun. The ending was even more fun, but the Packers had two real big losses coming into this or coming out of this game. Kylan Hill, third string running back and kick returner, tore his ACL, and Robert Tunyon tore his up as well. Tunyon was really coming into his own, had had the solid game the week prior, and had a nice big catch in this one too, but actually tore his ACL on that play. That's it for his season for 2021. In terms of what we forgot from this game, two fun plays. Henry Black had an interception fall into his lap, and Mercedes Lewis very nearly came down with what should have been the catch of the year. Couldn't quite get the second foot down. But I love that play, and I'm going to say something nice about Troy Aikman here. On that call, go back and listen to it sometime. On that call, Troy Aikman had one of the most genuine displays of emotions I think I've ever heard heard from him. His reaction to Mercedes Lewis spearing the ball out of the air with one hand was just, it, I can't even describe the, the sound that he makes. And I, I don't want to, you know, try to cheapen it by putting it in here. One you would experience for yourself, but just it's, it's a reflection of kind of just pure joy that you only get from watching live sports. It's something that he hadn't seen before or something unexpected just out of nowhere. And that's, something that I wish we got from guys like Troy Aikman a little more often. I think Troy, if he's if he's got one big fault, almost tries to be too broadcasterly, broadcastery sometimes. And I think if he just showed a little bit more humanity, people might be a little bit more forgiving towards him. If he was just a goofy guy, which I think he kind of is, um, and just enjoyed the game as much as, you know, say a guy like Tony Romo does, maybe not to that extent, but if he if he loosened up a little bit and just showed some of those genuine emotions... You might have some more sympathetic fans. In week nine, things got weird. Packers had a big game on the schedule, traveling to Kansas City to take on the Chiefs, and it was supposed to be the big showdown between Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes. Supposed to be, but wasn't, because Aaron Rodgers got COVID and the Packers lost. Not because Aaron Rodgers had COVID, per se, because there were plenty of opportunities to win this game, but they lost because they tried to run the Aaron Rodgers game plan with Jordan Love. And Kansas City wins a barn burner, 13-17. to 17. This game was really decided when Aaron Rodgers tested positive for COVID. Or was it decided when Matt LaFleur made his bad game plan decision with Jordan Love? Or was it decided when Jordan Love threw an interception on 3rd and 10 in Kansas City territory in the 4th quarter? Packers were in makeable field goal range at that point. It's not impossible to, to imagine a situation where, you know, the Packers go down and score there and have an opportunity to kick a game-tying field goal or make a touchdown later because they did get the ball back and they did go down and score. In terms of the lasting impact, and this is what I really want to focus on from this game because I think it's been pretty well covered in terms of you know the, the details of this game, the, the storyline of this game. I think it's pretty well understood. But the overall conversation, I think, is, is the lasting impact of this game because the discourse was the big winner of this game. Sure, the Aaron Rodgers... COVID-19 takes were wild and crazy, and we didn't even get a full resolution on that until months later when Aaron Rodgers 
you know, enumerated his role in that sort of debacle. Uh, but the, the Jordan Love takes were wild and crazy too. And from the Jordan Love aspect of this game, I'm still not sure what to make of it. It certainly doesn't reflect particularly well on Matt LaFleur because I think he put his guy in his really bad, his guy in a really bad spot. He tried to run with the Packers run with Aaron Rodgers with Jordan Love, and that's just, it was never going to work. There's so much of the game that Aaron Rodgers controls that Jordan Love just doesn't have access to yet because he doesn't have the experience. And as soon as the Chiefs realized that they were just going to try to do Aaron Rodgers stuff with Jordan Love, what did they do? Unleashed ridiculous pressure, made Jordan Love read pressure instead of read the secondary, and away you go. And for a lot of the night, Jordan Love was just a sitting duck. So I don't think this game reflects particularly well on Matt LaFleur. But I also don't think it reflects particularly well on Jordan Love either. Sure, pretty limited exposure. Granted, give you that. And sure, Kansas City just teed off on him. But he didn't handle it particularly well either. Yes, that's a heck of an environment to get thrown into for your first start. But he didn't really shine in that environment either. And I don't think you can take that out of the evaluation. It's not fair to him, but we don't judge pro athletes fairly. It's not fair that his first start came in Kansas City in a situation where his coach didn't necessarily put him in the best position. But you know what that is? That is life. Many young quarterbacks get put into bad spots. And Jordan Love got put in a bad one and didn't elevate himself at all. It was kind of concerning to me that the the game plan you need to run with this supposedly big-armed quarterback needed to be this quick, short-passing game because he can't read pressure well enough to stand in there and get the ball down the field under pressure. I think that's a little bit concerning. You don't want to take too much away from it. We'll get a better look at Jordan Love this summer, but until then, that's kind of the lasting impression of Jordan Love. So through nine weeks, the Packers doing pretty well. Some concerns, maybe about special teams. There was a block field goal in there too against the the Washington football team. But overall, it feels like they're in a pretty good spot. And if they can just figure out how to continue to keep their offense ticking along, they'll probably be in pretty darn good shape heading down the stretch and into the playoffs. Of course, we know how that story ends, but that is a story for another day. In the meantime, that's all I've got for you in this episode. I appreciate you listening in. I would appreciate it even more if you'd take a second and share this someone with uh, share this episode with someone you think would enjoy it too. That's going to help more people find the show and get more people involved in this conversation that you and I are having about the Green Bay Packers, which in turn is going to help all of us, me included, perhaps me most of all, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.